week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I am Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. The applause you heard is because we're coming to you from the opulent Heinz Convention Center in Boston, Massachusetts, for the first and quite possibly last live episode of this podcast. It's Thursday, September 6th, and here's what's on the docket this week. The world got its first look at human data from a genome editing clinical trial this week, and it was not so great. We'll break down what the data from Sangamo Therapeutics actually mean. And we're through about three quarters of 2018, and that seemed like reason enough to look at the state of the biotech union. So we'll take stock of the hot button issues from the start of the year and discuss what's been surprising, disappointing, and outright dismal. A former pharma CEO is trying to win a seat in the U.S. Senate at a time when no one particularly likes pharma CEOs. Damien went to New Jersey to catch up with Bob Hugan. And finally, we'll do a lightning round, but this time with a twist. We'll supply the hot takes as usual, but our live audience will supply the questions. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P O D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. So regular listeners of this podcast will recall that a couple weeks ago, we previewed a very important upcoming biotech event, and that was results from the first clinical trial in which a form of gene editing is being used to treat, perhaps even cure, patients with a rare inherited disease. And so genome editing, of course, has generated a ton of buzz because of that potential that Rebecca mentioned to possibly cure patients by cutting out or replacing disease-causing genes. But to this point, all of the experiments have involved test tubes or animals. Which brings us to Wednesday, when we were finally served up some genome editing data in actual human beings. These data were very preliminary, but they came from a small study conducted by the biotech firm Sangamo Therapeutics. And those results were... Adam, how did you describe them to us? Yeah, I think I used the term muddled mess. And I'm assuming that explains why Sangamo's stock price fell by about 20% on the news. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's exactly right. So from the negative reaction, I assume Sangamo hasn't yet convinced anyone that its genome editing therapy is actually curing patients. Yeah, no, they haven't. Uh, now, it might be a wee bit unfair to call the Sangamo data trial results a mess. I mean, after all, no reasonable person was expecting to make any definitive judgments on the company's genome editing therapy. Uh, it's really too early to do that. Uh, however, the results the company did present were confounding, and they raised more questions and didn't really offer many answers, and that's the problem. So what happened exactly in the trial, Adam? So the patients enrolled in Sangmo's clinical trial all suffered from a very rare inherited disease called MPS2, or Hunter syndrome. People with MPS2 are born with a defective gene that prevents the body from making a certain beneficial enzyme. This enzyme is needed to break down a waste product that's made in cells. Now, since the enzyme is missing in these MPS2 patients, the waste product builds up and causes severe damage to their tissues and organs. So Sangamo is trying to use its gene editing technology, uh, something called zinc finger nucleases, to turn certain liver cells into tiny enzyme-producing factories. 
And the goal of the clinical trial was to show that editing these liver cells successfully could result in the production of this missing enzyme. The idea being that it would then break down and eliminate that poisonous waste product. And was Sangamo able to do any of that? Sort of, Damien. Maybe. This is where the story kind of ran off the rails. Uh, So, so far, only four patients have been treated, and then they were followed for just four months. Now, in two patients, Sangamo's gene therapy did nothing. Uh, Then researchers treated another two patients with a higher dose. When these patients were evaluated, researchers found a meaningful decrease in the level of that poisonous waste product. Which is a good thing, I assume. It is a good thing. These patients showed a preliminary signs of improvement. Uh, but when researchers looked for the beneficial enzyme, they found nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. So Sangama was unable to detect any increase in that beneficial enzyme. Now, if the company's genome editing therapy was, in fact, turning liver cells into those tiny enzyme-making factories, the tangible evidence was missing. And that gets to why the results are both encouraging and confounding, right? Two patients showed some improvements, but Sangamo can't show data conclusively linking its genome editing therapy to those improvements. Yeah, that's right, Rebecca. Not yet. And and that explains the negative reaction that we saw on Wednesday. And I'm kind of struck by just how scant the data are. It's four patients with just four months of follow-up, so it's entirely preliminary. And it follows kind of a recent trend we've seen in gene therapy and genome editing, where it seems like companies are in a rush to announce something, and then they end up announcing things that only raise more questions than they do provide answers. Yeah, those are great points. You know, sometimes the strategy works. Uh, Think of Sarepta recently. And sometimes it doesn't like with Sangamo this week. And Sangamo and companies like it fall into the Wall Street catalyst game. You know, there's pressure to feed the short-term needs of investors who want to see data sooner rather than later, even if that data are nearly impossible to interpret. Yeah, I spoke to one of the principal investigators of the Sangamo genome editing trial, and you know, he basically told me that the company should have waited until they had more data uh, and, on patients and followed them longer. So I think what we're getting at here is the idea that maybe Sangamo is a cautionary tale uh, for some of the CRISPR companies that are headed into their own genome editing clinical trials. For this segment, we're going to look back at some of the trends and people that we identified way back at the start of 2018 as hot button issues most likely to shape biotech this year. Yeah, now that we're more than eight months into the year, it's time for a progress report. So we're going to go through each subject, such as M&A or President Trump, and then we're going to issue one of three completely subjective verdicts. So one, things went better than expected. Two, they went as expected. Or three, of course, they went much worse than expected. And the first topic is IPOs. All right, so Damien, what do you think? Uh, Has the number of biotech IPOs this year been better, the same, or worse than expected? So this one's easy. It has been better than expected. In 2018, biotech is on pace to reach levels not seen since the sort of 2014 boom cycle in terms of number of IPOs in the year. But that, of course, raises the question. Sure, there's a lot of IPOs, but is that a good thing? 
Right, so it's important to keep in mind the legacy of 2014, which is when more than 80 companies went public, a bunch of them blew up, and that contributed to the correction that took place in 2015, in which a lot of biotech companies lost money, and that IPO window closed for a while. And I think that's maybe something to be wary of as people are so excited about the number this year. Right, so it's good for venture capitalists and other opinion makers when IPOs are plenty. But it's also worth remembering that uh, that quantity adds more risk to the public markets where some of the money of, of mom-and-pop investors is at stake. And there's also a trade-off to be made here. Uh, at the end of the day, there's still a limited pool of money available for all of these IPOs. Uh, some deals are having more difficult time getting through or need more purchases from insiders to support the deal. Okay, moving on to our next topic, M&A. So according to one sell-side survey that was conducted last December, 92% of investors who were polled thought there'd be more M&A in 2018 than in 2017. Adam, how has that prediction played out? David, it's not played out all that well. Uh, we obviously have more time for deals to happen this year, uh, but so far I'd say M&A activity overall in 2018 is lower than expected. Right, so the narrative coming into the year was that the favorable tax reform would usher in a wave of deal making in the drug industry, but that didn't really happen. There were a few notable ones, the Celgene and Juno acquisition, Novartis bought Avexis, and I think the Biggest was, of course, Takeda buying Shire for $62 billion. Yeah, it's worth remembering back in December when everyone thought that Clovis, Sage, Neurocrine, Insight, Bluebird, Bio, Sarepta, these were the hottest biotech targets to be acquired. Well, you know, they're all still solo. So, Damien, why haven't these companies been bought? I think it comes down to the same thing that pharma CEOs have said for years and years and years, which is that biotech is just too overpriced. So with the sort of boost in biotech indices that we've seen, what it means is that these companies are more valuable than they ever were before, which sort of paradoxically makes them even less likely to get acquired. And speaking of things that haven't happened, another thing we haven't seen is the kind of great big mergers of equal companies, big size, big valuation. You know, every year someone will predict that Bristol-Myers Squibb is going to get bought, and it keeps not happening. I think mega mergers are they're kind of like unicorns, you know, they're fantasized about, but rarely seen. Okay, let's move on to our next subject, and that's China. So we've all been prattling on for years about the rise of biotech in China, and this was meant to be the year it really took a leap. Damien, has that come true? For this one, I think it's, it's gone as expected. I think everybody said that a lot of money would flow into Chinese biotech companies from China and from the United States, and that happened, and then it seemed like everybody smart worried that the Hong Kong Stock Exchange was gonna have trouble with its great big embrace of biotech, and that's pretty much happening as well. I'm gonna challenge Amian's opinion on this one. I think it's been better than expected. You know, we're talking about China uh, more now. The conversation has kind of shifted from, at the beginning of the year, you know, get ready, China's up and coming, but now we're seeing actual discrete milestones. Uh, you know, just in the last few days, we've seen the commercial launch of Bristol-Myers Squibb's Opdivo, which is China's first cancer immunotherapy. We also, this week, saw a company called ChiMed get what's the first sort of unconditional approval for an innovative drug that was homegrown right in China for a, a mainstream oncology indication. Okay, so the next subject is Donald Trump. Uh, newsflash, guys. Donald Trump is the president of the United States. Uh, and the president of the United States is the most powerful person in the country. But um, is President Trump even relevant to the drug industry at this point? Yeah, so at the beginning of the year, there was a ton of fear and, and apprehension that 
Trump was going to crack down on pricing. You know, I remember at the JP Morgan conference in San Francisco in January, there was this huge Trump overhang. Did that actually materialize? Not really, no. It feels like those fears were unfounded. And actually, just this week, there was a poll or a survey, I suppose, that the Kaiser Foundation did. And they found that 55% of Americans believe that Trump's method of just like telling drug companies to lower their prices will not result in anything demonstrable. Yeah, and that was the conventional wisdom throughout the year, uh, you know, right up until he tweeted about Pfizer, and then Pfizer delayed some price increases. Yeah, but I think even then, since we've learned more about that, we've come to understand that I think it had a lot less to do with Donald Trump himself and more to do with Alex Azar, the head of Health and Human Services. Right, so if you listen to Pfizer, they believe the administration is going to shift things in their favor when it comes to this ongoing fight with the middlemen that are in the supply chain. And so, you know, while that one-time piece of news was ostensibly very positive for Trump, I think it's clear that pharma thinks it's getting the better end of the deal here. Okay, so moving on to our final subject for this segment, and that's FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. Yeah, you know, a look at 2018 uh, so far would not be complete without grading the performance of everyone's favorite skinny jean wearing, Thanksgiving leftover shaming, hamburger well done eating... Always tweeting, FDA commissioner. <laughs> Do you want me to raise the applause sign? Or the... Yes, I think. Yes, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scott, if you're listening to that, uh, you know, I still love you. Scott Gottlieb doesn't listen. Yeah. Um, okay. So, Rebecca, Scott definitely entered 2018 as a very popular FDA commissioner, at least in biotech circles. Does he deserve all the kudos that he's gotten? So I think it's a mixed bag. You know, some things that he's done, he deserves credit for. You know, he promised a bunch of new initiatives and a bunch of fast drug approvals. And he has largely delivered on that promise, I think. He made a bunch of noise about public health and he came through when it comes to reducing the nicotine in cigarettes and also making sure that no one ever says nut milk. Oh yes, the nut milk. And there are also areas, I think, where there's a reasonable critique to be made of Scott's tenure so far. You know, right to try, I think, would be one of those things. And, and also maybe streamlining drug development, you know, where we, we're kind of wondering whether he's lowering the bar for drug approvals too far. And one thing, it's not necessarily a criticism, but I think it's worth noting, Scott has gotten a lot of positive press and good headlines off of his stances on drug pricing and specifically making drugs cheaper. And it kind of feels like a cheap way to curry favor because, of course, the FDA doesn't regulate drug prices. So he can be very critical of the industry and then kind of throw up his hands and say, someone ought to do something about this. Okay, next segment, we're going to talk about politics. So in the lead up to the November midterm elections, there is a handful of races where drug pricing is coming up as a particularly prominent issue. So one super PAC trying to elevate the issue of drug pricing in the midterms is running attack ads against Representative Anna Eshoo. Uh, She's a Democratic congresswoman from Silicon Valley who's accepted $1.6 million in lifetime contributions from drug companies and their employees. That same super PAC is running positive ads to support Representative David McKinley. He's an incumbent Republican congressman from a district in West Virginia. And that's because they see him as essentially an ally in the push to address high drug prices. And today, Thursday, uh, Democratic voters in Delaware are going to the polls for a primary that's pitting an 18-year incumbent in the Senate against an upstart who's campaigning on a platform shunning pharmaceutical industry influence. So all those races obviously deeply involve drug prices, but there's one in particular where the issue is maximally explicit, and that's the one in which Bob Hugan, who of course was the CEO of Celgene, is running in New Jersey against the Democratic incumbent Bob Menendez. Speaking of which, Damien, uh, how did you spend your Labor Day? 
Well, Adam, I was in New Jersey. Uh, I was <laughs> fascinated by the Hugen race for all the reasons that I stated above, and I wanted to see Bob Hugen, a man I've known for some number of years in the context of CEO of Celgene, in a completely different context, which is walking the streets of Rutherford at the annual Labor Day Street Fair, which is sort of the coming out party for the election season in New Jersey, at least I was told. Um, and what was at least fascinating to me about that was to see a guy I am most comfortable seeing in a suit rather in a sweat-stained polo and aggressively pleated khaki shorts, wandering the streets among fried Oreos and deep-fried calzones, which seemed like just adding risk to risk when it comes to heart disease in terms of what you eat. Uh, but yeah, so I had a lovely time. Did you try any of these Oreos or deep-fried calzones? I didn't. In order to maintain my journalistic objectivity, I thought I should abstain. Understandable. So you often hear people talk about the magnetic presence of a politician like, say, Bill Clinton. Uh, people say you can only really get a sense of that uh, when you meet him in person. Uh, Damien, what are the Bobs like in person? Yeah, so I was prepared for anything when it came to Bob Hugan as a candidate, and I found him to be somewhat surprisingly warm. He shook hands. He's got a bright smile. He was careful to say good to see you rather than nice to meet you, which is sort of an old politician trick to make sure you don't offend anyone you accidentally met before and forgot. I do that too. <laughs> but in contrast, Bob Menendez was like a, a fish in water, I suppose, in this instance. He just was incredibly magnetic. He seemed to greet everyone with exactly the right thing. He had a broad smile and a big laugh, and he hit his angles in selfies as though he were like a teenage girl, very adept at that process. I was, I was very impressed with him. And I guess what I'm saying is there's a reason that that man has been winning elective office since he was 20 years old. So all the insane number of people in this room uh, right now and the people listening to the podcast probably know Bob Hugin in the context of Celgene, Damien. So what was he like out among the people? He seemed comfortable, but what was striking to me is if you've been to J.P. Morgan, you know Celgene has sort of the prime spot on Monday morning. And so Bob is this eminence and he comes on the dais and all the analysts are waiting on him to disclose their uh, financial projections for the year, and he is this figure in biotech. So it was fascinating to watch him as pretty much an unknown candidate, kind of wandering the street, reaching out to people, hoping that they'd be nice to him. A lot of people were kind of befuddled. They've never heard of him before. And that contrast was, was fascinating to me. It was why I wanted to go to Jersey. So Bob Hugan obviously made more money than anyone could possibly need uh, when he was at Celgene. And he certainly does not need to work again. Why on earth is he doing this? Right, so I asked him exactly that question. And, and he mentioned that when he stepped down from Celgene, which they announced in 2017, he was thinking about doing something in neuroscience or in um, IT related to healthcare. But then he told me the only reason I'm running for Senate is Bob Menendez. Menendez, of course, quite famously faced serious corruption charges that ended in a hung jury, but it tarred his name, I think it's fair to say. And Hugin said, basically, I'm fed up with this embarrassing senator representing my state, and I want to stop him. So Damien, put on your uh, political pundit hat and tell us, do you think Bob Hugin can win? So I have no idea, but I would defer to the New Jersey politics experts that I spoke with. And the consensus among them was that it's kind of a long shot. The upside for Bob Hugan is that he has committed $20 million of all that money that Rebecca mentioned that he has uh, to the campaign, which means he's been on television since April. And that's a positive for him. Obviously, it takes money to win a campaign. But it's a Democratic state, and people may be frustrated with Bob Menendez in New Jersey, but the people are registered Democrats, and they will see electing a Republican senator as tilting the balance toward Donald Trump, who's deeply unpopular in New Jersey, and will probably just come home and send old Bob Menendez back to the Senate.
Okay, now it is time for another lightning round. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, we're taking questions from our live studio audience here in Boston. Hi, folks. This is Vikash Sharma from BioXL Therapeutics. Now, my question is, how do you choose the subjects or the topics that you want to address the podcast in 25 minutes? Well, I think we, what we try to do is, it's a mix. We try to do uh, a mix of kind of, of news and things that have happened during the week. So we want to talk about those and kind of analyze them. And then we also want to sort of have a, uh, a segment that kind of looks forward to, to like the future. Yeah. We also try to have guests to mix it up. We try to like, you know, get new voices in and different perspectives that we can't provide. Another thing I'll add too is we sometimes look for stories that make sense as an audio segment. If there's a clip from a news show or uh, something that has a great sound element that we can integrate in, uh, that's on the top of our list. Yes, uh, Gary Cuppet, uh, Microvation Therapeutics. Uh, there's been a lot of rumbling about um, changing the reporting period to go from quarterly to semi-annually, maybe even annually. So how do you think that's going to change the response, not only on trying to figure out what earnings are, but also as data is released between those time periods. Because if you go annually, for some companies, that's a lot of data coming out before there's any impact. And it could really roil the market. I think, well, so for two things. I mean, one, if it's big clinical trial data, companies would be required by the SEC to disclose it just because it'd be um, material, material non-public information. But to your point about people trying to model drug sales, it would be, I mean, if you cut in half the amount, the number of disclosures in a year, it would make it that much more difficult to figure out what's going to happen. And we actually talked about this on the podcast. I think a concern would be market volatility. Like if a drug is selling less, when you get quarterly updates on that lessening of sales, then the stock price might go down in some sort of predictable manner. If it just happens that at the half of the year, you find out that things have plummeted, I don't see who that's good for, to be honest. And, I, and I'm a proponent of more transparency, not less. And I think having fewer reporting periods uh, would actually hurt transparency. One point, too, I think it's pretty unlikely that we do actually see this happen. I think if you look at the statement that the SEC put out after Trump called for this in a tweet, uh, they didn't sound very enthused about the idea. I think they said they would study it, which, uh, as we all know, uh, means that it is segmented in, into a committee and is going to, to die in a, a boardroom somewhere. Hi, I'm Sarah Mahoney from Weber Shanwick Public Relations Firm. Big fan of podcasts and podcasting in general. And one of the questions that I had kind of following on the earlier gentleman's question about how you did curate and determine the content of the show. Rebecca, you mentioned sound worthiness of the stories. So I've been curious about how you complement the podcast and stat news and determine which goes where and how you kind of prioritize what you think belongs long form media versus sound and so on. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think sometimes we'll take a story that was already written as an article and then redo a segment uh, for the podcast. Uh, so it'll be kind of a doubling up. But we've also done the opposite direction. Uh, we did a segment a few weeks ago on uh, the animal rights organization PETA and uh, their issues with the company Impossible Foods. Uh, and that sort of originated as a podcast segment, and then we decided afterwards, hey, let's turn this into a story. Um, and we're also on the lookout sometimes for, for things that maybe just make sense um, on, on the podcast alone. Yeah, and when we do a, a podcast segment based on a story that we've published, 
you know, we have to tweak it, right? There's a lot of things that you can put into a story, details that are, you know, you can read and process. But when you listen to something on a podcast, like a lot of like comp- the complexities, numbers, those sorts of things don't really translate well when you're listening to a podcast. So we have to tweak things and kind of maybe simplify them a little bit for, for you know, for the audio. Hi, I'm Kate Kaplan with Charles River. As you guys mentioned, the IPO sector is very hot this year. We're on pace to set our new record. But I've also noticed that there's been uh, kind of a, a move more and more towards earlier IPO, so companies that are further and further away from commercialization. Do you have any comments on that or thoughts about what's driving that on, on both sides, on the receptivity to the risk and then on the, the need to submit the IPO? I think you refer to the preclinical IPO, which has uh, sort of reared its ugly head these days, right, Damien? <laughs> I didn't call it ugly. Um, <laughs> no, I think to your point, it is really interesting, and I think it reflects a couple things. One, the receptivity to the risk, uh, which actually Adam wrote a story about this that was really interesting. You know, we were curious as to whether the public markets investors who were buying these really had the sophistication to understand the risks of the science. And what they all said was, yes, um, a lot of the funds that buy up these public stocks are also now investing in private rounds of early stage companies, which means they've recruited the kind of scientists that they think allow them to vet those risks and make comfortable bets, even though it's all mice and test tubes. And I would say something that we alluded to earlier about the fact that, you know, you're seeing companies come out and present data, like from really small data sets. A lot of these companies, the the kind of the thinking is, is that, you know, a lot of the value creation that you can get from, you know, a couple of patients, four patients, whatever, these companies feel like, you know, that, that value creation, they can, they can come out with those data and a stock that may IPO somewhere. And then, you know, really you, you see stocks going, you know, 50% higher on very small data sets. And that's kind of also driving some of these companies going public earlier. So that's a wrap on this special live recording of the Read Out Loud. We want to thank Hyacinth Empanado, Dom Smith, and Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode. We also want to thank the folks on our marketing team for helping put on today's show. That's Brittany Whitmore, Becky Warner, and Shay Butler. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a general reminder that we would love to hear from you, whether you have comments, suggestions for future guests, suggestions for future live venues. You can send us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com, and we appreciate the feedback, so thank you. See you next week. Thank you.